You're listening to Driven by Insight. Join Willie Walker, Walker and Dunlop's chairman and CEO, as we bring you fresh perspectives about leadership, business, the economy, and commercial real estate. Willie hosts a diverse network of leaders as they share wisdom that cuts across industry lines. His guests are experts in their fields. From leading economists and CEOs to Harvard and Yale professors and everything in between. Our one goal is simple, providing you with unique insights, unparalleled data, and real-time market analyses. Good afternoon, everyone on the East Coast, and good morning to those of you further to the West. It's great to have my friend Will Ahmed with me today. Before I dive into my discussion with Will, and I'm going to dive right in, I just wanted to uh, point out that we announced an acquisition at Walker Knopf this morning of Zellman & Associates, which is a fantastic research and investment banking firm that will be a wonderful addition to WND. And uh, I just, I've had Ivy Zellman, uh, founder and CEO of Zellman on the Walker webcast before. So it is a real pleasure to have Ivy and her team joining our company. And I just wanted to give a shout out for that deal because it's great to have them with us. Uh, So let me do a quick intro of Will, and then we'll dive into our discussion. Will Ahmed is the founder and CEO of Whoop, which has developed next-generation wearable technology, like this strap on my arm. Oh, I took it off a moment ago. It just came off. Oh, well. Uh, (laughs) That's great. I'm supposed to have the prop there, Will, that works to show. There you go. Will's got his on. Mine came off. I don't know what happened to it. I wear it all the time. Optimizing human performance and health. Whoop's members range from professional athletes and Fortune 500 CEOs to fitness enthusiasts and executives, to military personnel and healthcare workers. Whoop has raised more than $200 million from top investors and has an active advisory board that consists of some of the world's most notable cardiologists, technologists, marketers, and designers. Will has recently been named to the 2020 Fortune 40 Under 40 list, previously named to the Forbes 30 Under 30 list, and to the Boston Business Journal 40 Under 40. In 2020, Whoop was named Fast Company's most innovative company for wellness. Before founding Whoop, most of my guests have previous business experience to go to, but in Will's case, it's straight back to college. Will was named a 2011 Harvard College Scholar for finishing the top 10% of his class and a CSA Scholar Athlete. He captained the Harvard men's varsity squash team. Will, first of all, welcome. Second of all, You've known success from a very young age. You went to St. Paul's school. You won the league championship. You won the New England championships. You were number four in the country. You went on to Harvard. You were captain of the squash team at Harvard. And I heard someone once in an interview they were doing with you compare you to the Winklevoss twins who happened to have gone to Harvard and had that contentious lawsuit with Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook. And when someone compared you to the Winklevoss, and I don't know them, but I sort of said, that's not really a good compliment to Will because I've watched enough interviews with them to know that they carry a lot of their success with them and what they say. And you don't. You're wildly grounded for somebody who has been as successful at such a young age as you've been. What is it, Will, that's kept you sort of centered and balanced? Willie, well, first of all, thanks for, for having me on and, and congrats on the acquisition this morning. We'll get a whoop back on your wrist. And for everyone watching, I do know Willie wears whoop 24-7. So that's kind of a funny moment that, that he stuck his arm out and there's no whoop. I think a lot of it for me has been uh, focusing on what can come next and what we're capable of building or what I'm capable of, of doing with my life. I try to stay as present as possible. I try to stay pretty grateful for the people I get to work with and and the technology that I've been fortunate enough to play a role in creating. And I think I also, I've gotten to be surrounded now by a lot of really successful, really interesting people, whether it's in sports or technology or in the business world, people like yourself who, you know, run publicly traded companies and manage hundreds, if not thousands of people. So I think for me, getting to meet a lot of people like that has been humbling as well. And in a way, it's kind of kept me hungry inside. It's like, wow, there's a lot more that you can accomplish, there's a lot more you can do. So that's at least how I've, how I've thought about it. You came up with the idea for Whoop when you were still at Harvard and read, I think you've said, 500 different papers and journal articles on the general area of physiology and health. Describe for a moment what it was that sort of piqued your interest in this space and what got the concept of WHOOP going. 
Well, I'd always been uh, interested in sports and exercise. I played a bunch of sports growing up. I played squash while I was at Harvard. And my experience as a college athlete, I was someone who used to overtrain. So, you, you know, you kind of get fitter and fitter and you fall off a cliff. And I felt like I didn't know why that was happening. And it's kind of the ultimate betrayal. I mean, other athletes get injured or misinterpret fitness peaks, you know, don't necessarily understand the importance of recovery or sleep. This is like 2010 timeframe. And I think at that time, we kind of peaked in terms of more is more just philosophically in the world of sports. And I just got very interested in were there things I could measure about my own body to better understand performance and the status of my body. And so that led me down this rabbit hole. I read 500 medical papers in school. I went from being a government concentrator to spending a lot of time in the science department. And so I ended up writing a paper around how to continuously understand the human body. And I would say that largely became the business plan for WHOOP in that if we could measure a lot of the things that I had identified in medical literature, uh, if we could measure those things continuously, we could not only really enhance the world's best athletes or any athlete, we could also create a, a whole platform around health improvement. And that's largely what I've spent the last nine or 10 years of my life thinking about every day and doing. I've heard you talk that you went to coaches and you were thinking about building this tracking device, if you will, to give data. And all the coaches kept saying to you, well, yeah, tell me sort of how much faster my athletes can run or how much stronger my athletes can be when they're actually performing. And you actually went the other way to look at recovery because the coaches would sit there and say to you, but my biggest challenge is making sure that my athletes don't get injured. They're making sure that my athletes are ready to perform. Talk for a moment about what literally made you sort of say, there's a lot of data out there about how someone moves from point A to point B or adds strength or adds weight or whatever the case might be, but there's not a lot of data as it relates to recovery. It's a good lesson in entrepreneur's role, right? An entrepreneur's role is really to identify problems for, that their customers may have. Often what can happen when you're talking to a prospective customer or someone in your market is you're hearing them describe a solution. And so you think that solution is what you should go build. In the case of measuring athletes, I went to coaches and I asked them, what would you like me to develop if I'm going to commit the next 10 years to this space, so to speak? And a lot of the feedback was around exercise, more performance data, more video analysis. And then when I asked them, well, what are the problems that you're facing? It always came back to player availability, injuries, and really some notion of training optimally. So I felt like there was a mismatch between what the solutions that they were describing and the problems that they had. And I felt that the best way to actually solve those problems were to spend more time worrying about the other 20 hours of the day. And I also just knew this from my own personal life in that I was someone who would dedicate a lot during those three or four hours I was at practice, but I really wasn't thinking very thoughtfully about the other 20 or 21 hours of the day where I acted like a college kid, you know, and I stayed up late and went out and whatever. So for me, it, personally, I had this insight that if you could better understand recovery, you better in sleep, that may actually be the insight to uh, solving these problems. And it, it touches on a theme as well from the early days of WHOOP was the sort of contrarian perspective that we had that made building the technology very painful, I would say, along the way, because it felt like there was a lot of people telling us that we were building the wrong thing. But here we are. So, so you met John Capodilupo, who at the time was a sophomore at Harvard, and you were graduating. First of all, did John finish up at Harvard, or is he part of the ranks of Gates and Zuckerberg who decided to bang out of Harvard and pursue their dreams? Well, he's technically on a leave of absence, but he's been on that leave of absence for nine years, so Harvard might have to update that. John was uh, studying the hardest math class in the country, this class called Math 55, which is this notoriously difficult class at Harvard. And he was a high school winning astrophysicist student. And his father, as it turns out, is a professor of exercise physiology. If you can think about sort of a complementary partner for someone who's got a vision for building a product around health and fitness, John was as good as it gets. And Aurelian Nikolai, who really became the third founder of the company, he was a very talented mechanical engineer. And it turned out, that summer, so summer of 2012, I had just graduated. We started working at the Harvard Innovation Lab. John was had just finished his sophomore year. Aurelian was living on John's couch. 
And John said to me, you know, I've got this guy, this Romanian guy, he's really smart. He's living on my couch right now. I think something didn't work out for his job, but he's good at prototyping. And at the time we needed to start prototyping what the hardware could look like and do in order to measure some of the things that we were interested in. And so I said, hey, bring him on down. Nine years later, three of us are still building the business together. Let's dive into that for a second about the prototype and hardware versus software. I've heard you say that you always thought that if you built the good software, the hardware would come in the sense that you really focused on building great software at the beginning. Talk for a moment about, now in hindsight, whether that thought was the right way to focus or whether that was a naive way of focusing given how difficult it was to develop the hardware. I'll reframe that slightly in that I didn't think that building the software was going to be the hard part, but there was a long period of time where the hardware just wasn't going to be ready. And that period of time ended up being years, where it really took years to get all the technology into a form factor that was small enough for someone to wear 24-7. And there's a lot of challenges related to wearable technology. We might touch on them. But the fact that you have to wear the product 24-7 is one of the most profound challenges that faces anyone trying to play in this space. And I think it's why so many companies, really good companies have failed in this space. And so we had to develop these two things in parallel. And then one day just know that they were both going to arrive, you know, because there was these early feedback loops that would be like, oh, you should just build the software and have it integrate with other people's hardware, or you should just build the hardware. And then once you know your hardware works, you should build the software. Well, no, the problem with that is then your software isn't as robust and you haven't had as much shots on goal with it. So we're building both these things in parallel. I mean, the analogy is like building the left wing and the right wing of a plane and then sticking them on right before you take off. That was really what we were doing. There were risks associated with that. Primarily, the biggest risk being it was much more capital intensive. You know, I had to get good at raising capital early on, which was one of the challenges to building this business is we were very capital intensive before we really had revenue to support it. And fortunately, we had a lot of great investors bet on the vision and it's paid off. But those early years of kind of deep technology development were very hard years. So on that, before we dive into actually what you were developing, those early years that were hard and you're building it, you were told no by a lot of people. A lot of people didn't sort of buy into the vision. You had a thousand things you could have done with your career rather than going and starting Whoop. And so I can only imagine after you've been told this is a stupid idea a hundred times, there were plenty of moments where you just sort of said, what am I actually doing? What or who kept you going in the sense that a lot of people were sort of giving you negative feedback on all this. You were chewing up a lot of capital and investing in it. You had this great vision. And typically, most people would sort of give up the ghost and just get back to doing something, quote unquote, more normal. What was either the vision or the person who kind of kept faith in you that kept you moving? The more time you spend on something, the more you understand it. And I think it it helps frame your conviction. My conviction only got stronger over time. In fact, today it's the strongest it's ever been. The more time I spent on Whoop, the more sure I was that what we were building was right. The challenge with that is as my conviction was also growing, so was the list of people who told us we were going to fail. I mean, all I can say is that it was a really painful time. And I look back on ways that it could have been less painful. One way, which I advise other sort of younger founders on, or really any entrepreneurs on, is to this idea of trying to separate your self-identity from the identity of the business. When I was in my mid-20s and trying to manage 20 or 40 people and had raised millions of dollars, if Whoop had a good day, I had a good day. If Whoop was successful, I was successful. If Whoop had a bad day, I had a bad day. If something was not working, Will was not working, right? My identity and Whoop's identity were very tied together. I think that's a fairly unproductive mindset to have. I think that you can build a great business and continue to focus on ways that you're getting better day over day, independent from all the zigs and zags that a business takes on its way to the top. And it took really years to get better at that perspective. It took years to get better at incorporating negative feedback. Whereas now, you know, I think I do feel like I've got a good handle on those, on those sort of concepts. As you're getting a lot of negative feedback, if you will, you're, probably not listening that much. Then, as you said, when you turn 26 or 27, after a number of years of sort of getting hit hard and not listening to a lot of people say no, you all of a sudden 
started to open up and started to listen to people. What was it? Was it the success of Whoop that allowed you to sort of step back and say, I can now kind of start to listen to people and don't have to keep moving forward? Because I think about it sort of in the sense of a lot of people on in the political world get all sorts of input and they've got to kind of push it all to the side, even though it may resonate with them because they think they've got to stay true to where they're going and stay to that true north of what their political beliefs are. And it sounds a little bit like when you were building up Whoop and people were sort of saying, this is a silly idea and why are you spending your time on this? You had to kind of turn all that noise off. But then at some point, you also realized that that was potentially counterproductive and opened up and listened to that input. What was it? Where were you in your development life cycle that allowed you to open up and listen again? I think it was more of a survival instinct to be a little bit blocked off in those early years, because if I had brought too much of that feedback in, it would have been very hard to have stayed focused or to maintain the level of conviction that I think it required to get the business to at least that middle stage of having great technology and now needing to figure out the business model. You know, someone said to me, Will, you don't have to listen to the feedback, but you should hear it. That was sort of a helpful framework where you can absorb negative feedback, you can process it. It doesn't mean you have to necessarily do exactly what you're being told to do or uh, what other people think you should do. That was a good framework along the way, for sure. I think also there's an interesting shift that happens when you're an entrepreneur from being an individual contributor to being more of a manager. And when you're kind of a pure individual contributor, there's this feeling that you need to just go, right? And it's kind of like the racehorse needs to have its blinders on. And that's, you know, somewhere up to having 10 people or 20 people. It's really early days, even like a CTO or one of the first engineers, like they may have blinders on for years, right? But as the company matures and you have more and more thoughtful leaders on the team and you realize that your company's output has far less to do with your output and far more to do with everyone on your direct team's output, that's when you also have to start, or at least I had to start reassessing, what does it mean to have conviction about something? What does it mean to be a leader? How do you navigate conflicting points of view? I love that saying about you don't need to listen to what they're saying. You just need to hear it. It's a fantastic comment. As it relates to the technology, and what you were trying to measure. Whoop measures physiological indicators very accurately. Can you dive in for a moment and talk about what those physiological indicators are that you track and how Whoop goes about tracking them? Yeah, I think one of the core differentiators for Whoop over the years was that we really wanted to focus our technology on accurate health monitoring. Whoop is great at all the things that it does for all the things that it doesn't do. If you see it on my wrist right now, it doesn't have a high-resolution screen. It doesn't have a microphone. I can't make phone calls. I'm not going to flag an Uber down with it. But when it comes to health monitoring, it's really the best engine in town. And we allocated all of our resources to that. And there's a lot of trade-offs, right? As you start adding more features, you start pulling at the degree to which you're a phenomenal health monitor. That's part of what's plagued other products in the space. Now for Whoop, we'll collect data anywhere from 50 to 100 times per second across six different metrics. And that level of granularity equates to about 1,000 to 10,000 times as much health data in a given day as, as like an Apple Watch or a Fitbit. So it's orders of magnitude, different levels of data. And one of the things that I identified in doing this research 10 years ago was this statistic heart rate variability. Heart rate variability is a little more well-known today, but it was really sort of a cult, bizarre statistic in decades past. It, first of all, it required uh, an electrocardiogram to measure. It was being used by Olympians in the 80s to determine, like power lifters, to determine how much weight they should lift on a given day, they would measure the statistic heart rate variability. It would tell them how much they should lift. I was like, well, that's kind of interesting. And it was used by some of the best cyclists in the world to determine how hard their training load should be. It was used by the CIA to predict whether or not someone was lying. It was used by cardiologists in early 2000s to determine if someone was about to have a heart attack. This is all in medical literature that's publicly available. So when I was reading about that, I was like, wow, why have I never heard of this statistic and why isn't it more readily available? Well, here's the thing about heart rate variability. It's a very hard statistic to measure. 
it used to only be measured by an electrocardiogram. If you go back to the early days of WHOOP, one of the first things that we were we really set out to do was to prove that we could measure heart rate variability as accurately as an electrocardiogram from the wrist, which is a fairly big breakthrough that we're proud of. Now, heart rate variability, you may be asking, well, what is this thing? It's essentially a measurement of the time between successive beats of your heart. If your heart's beating at 60 beats per minute, it's not beating every second. Right? That's a very counterintuitive concept. It may be beating at, say, 1.2 seconds and then 0.8 seconds and then 0.7 seconds and then 1.3 seconds, right? So that time in between beats is variable. And also counterintuitive, the more variable time in between successive beats of the heart, the better. And the reason for that is it's a, a lens into your body's autonomic nervous system, right? Your autonomic nervous system consists of sympathetic and parasympathetic activity. Now, sympathetic's activation. So that's like heart rate up, blood pressure up, respiration up. When you inhale, that's sympathetic, right? When you're exercising, when you're stressed, that's like you're, you're sympathetic dominant. When you exhale, that's parasympathetic. So that's heart rate down, blood pressure down, respiration down. So it helps you fall asleep. Now, for every sympathetic, you want to have a parasympathetic response. That, in turn, is what creates a high heart rate variability. So having these branches of your autonomic nervous system imbalance makes a higher heart rate variability. So WHOOP measures heart rate variability really accurately. Now, on top of measuring it continuously, we also give you a reading on it during slow wave sleep. Now, slow wave sleep is really important because it's when your body produces about 95% of its human growth hormone. And maybe we'll get more into sleep later, but you really, really want to get a lot of slow wave sleep because that's what's helping your body repair. It's preventing aging. You don't get stronger in the gym. You get stronger during slow wave sleep. Now, every night you go through some period of slow wave sleep and we'll measure slow wave sleep. But then we also collect the statistic that we just talked about, heart rate variability, boom, during the last five minutes of slow wave sleep. And what's important about that is we're then measuring the status of your autonomic nervous system while your body is repairing itself. So that's how we have this really fascinating lens into the status of your body every day, which then contributes to a very simple recovery score from zero to hundred percent regular green. So when you hear from WHOOP members that they're in the green or they're run down and they're in the red, that's because probably their heart rate variability is doing really well or it's run down. Obviously there's a lot of, we measure around sleep. There's a lot we measure around resting heart rate. And the whole product, I would say, is designed to be as actionable as possible. So you essentially took an EKG and put it on someone's wrist. You also, on the sleep side, created a sleep monitor that is as accurate as a PSG machine. I didn't know before I did my research for this what in the heck a PSG machine was, but it's what people go in and use to check whether someone has sleep apnea and any of the kind of sleep studies that they do in the hospital. Talk for a moment about the other side of the equation from strain on HRV to sleep and having on your wrist something that can monitor your sleep performance as well as a PSG machine. It's funny that you bring up those instruments because I remember from a business plan I wrote in like 2011, a picture of a heart rate chest strap, which is like sort of your polar chest strap that you wear around your chest a picture of an electrocardiogram and a picture of a PSG. The electrocardiogram is the sophisticated technology we talked about it's in hospitals and the PSG is the gold standard for measuring sleep. So it was like that plus that plus that equals question mark. And really that's what Equal, equals so, whoop equals whoop. Yeah. And so if you think about how whoop is organized, a lot of it's around taking that physiological data really accurately, but then giving it to people in simple scores. Let's take just heart rate monitoring. You're a pretty awesome endurance athlete. You've probably in the past worn a polar chest strap. I wore that for years. I thought it was really uncomfortable, somewhat ridiculous, outdated technology, even though it was accurate. The first step was, can we make heart rate monitoring as accurate as a polar chest strap? for exercise or daily activity. We did that, but that's where the strain score comes from. So WHOOP measures the strain of a workout or the strain of your overall day. We talked about heart rate variability, the ECG piece. That contributes largely to your recovery score. There's this fun balance between strain and recovery, right? If you think about what does it mean to train optimally, 
well, if you have a higher recovery, you want to take on more strain. If you have a lower recovery, you want to take on less strain. If you have a low recovery, but you take on a lot of strain and you do that day over day over day, that's a sign that you're overtraining your body, or it could be a sign that you're going to burn out as an executive, right? So by telling WHOOP members their recovery every morning, we can then also say how much strain they should put on their body. Again, it becomes more actionable. Now, at the end of the day, we look at the strain that's accumulated on your body and we look at your sleep debt, and we'll actually tell you how much sleep you need to recover for the next day. And that's where the PSG element comes in. So gold standard in sleep monitoring, we measure sleep really accurately, the time you spend in bed, as well as the stages. So the stages of sleep are really important. It often gets lost in discussion of sleep. REM and slow wave sleep are really the most valuable periods of sleep. Light and awake are far less valuable. If you're listening to this and you have no idea how much time you spend in bed equals REM and slow wave sleep. I would encourage you to, to monitor your sleep because you can still allocate the same six hours in bed or seven hours in bed every night. But if you can make a couple small adjustments to your lifestyle, you can dramatically increase the amount of slow wave sleep and REM sleep that you're getting. So often people complain, well, I don't have enough time for sleep. Okay, well, let's just start by taking the time you already have and making it a lot more efficient. So that's something that you can do on Whoop, where you can sort of A-B test things about your lifestyle, and Whoop will tell you what's the most effective for better sleep quality. So you've been doing studies with Whoop data with the U.S. Armed Services and with the Army specifically up in Alaska. And as I listened to your podcast on all the data that's come out of that, it was A, fascinating and how circadian rhythms get messed up because of the lack of light up in Fairbanks, Alaska, where the cohort you're studying is. But talk for a moment, Will, about, if you will, the applicability of the technology for a commander of troops and how the U.S. Army is using the data to determine who's actually going to go out on the front lines. This is a market that I'm personally very excited about. I know we as a company are making big investments towards. I think if you just sort of zoom out for a second, you've got 3 million armed service people in this country trying to protect this country every day, dedicating their lives to that. And from a health status, there's few groups that are more important to help understand, okay, is this person doing right from a health standpoint and from a performance standpoint? And there's sort of a few different chapters in terms of how to think about that. One chapter is, okay, let's say you're a member of the Army and you're on site for training. How is that training affecting your body? Are you in a period of overtraining? Do you need more time to recover? How can we think more optimally about a training plan, knowing that you may end up going to combat? Okay, now let's say you go to combat. Are there certain individuals that are redlining? Are there certain individuals that may need more attention, whether that be health care or medical care or just general self-awareness? One thing that was fascinating is we did a study on Navy SEALs. Obviously, Navy SEALs are some of the mentally toughest people in the world. Turns out, though, some of that mental toughness can, can be a setback, right? Because if your mind's able to push your body way past your body is comfortable, you're going to likely push your body to a place that's not necessarily good. So we did a study where we had 40 members of the, and this is public, so I can talk about it. We had 40 members of the Navy SEALs have access to their data. So they got whoop and they had access to their data. And then we had 40 members who did not have access to their data, but they wore whoop. And the interesting thing is if you looked at the group that had access to their data versus the group that didn't, they dramatically improved their physiology relative to the group that didn't. So again, this idea of self-awareness or managing what you measure, right, leading to positive behavior change, a lot of that's a theme for whoop. So they were able to see, wow, if I get a little more sleep, I have a higher recovery. And when you start getting competitive people thinking about competing around sleep versus just competing around strain, really positive things can start to happen quickly. So that's an example of self-awareness. And obviously, we're incredibly proud to support the SEALs. And then lastly, I think the way that we as a country think about returning from combat could potentially be enhanced. For example, in a lot of cases, it's a fairly standardized way of thinking about a troop's returned home. They're going to be at home for a certain period of time, and then they're going to go back to the site. The power of WHOOP, and you, you asked about sort of a central dashboard, 
is you can remote monitor a lot of people, right? And the technology is scalable such that you could have a team dashboard with tens of thousands of people on it or millions of people on it. And if you see certain people have returned home, but they're still redlining, they may need an additional phone call or additional attention, right? And by the way, this jumps off the page. It's not subtle if someone has post-traumatic stress disorder or is struggling from returning from combat. Like psychologically, it's showing up in their data. That, that statistic we talked about, heart rate variability, it plummets. That, there's an opportunity, I think, to be pretty thoughtful about that. And, you know, whoop, that's just that's something we feel obligated to play a role in if we can. So you talk about Whoop being able to give great data as it relates to troops returning from warfare and potentially suffering from PTSD. You also have a cohort of 51,000 Whoop wearers who have gotten vaccinated against COVID by all the different vaccines. Talk for a moment, Will, about what that data has told you. And one quick thing before I turn it over to you, which is just that I was on a chat board with a bunch of people I trained with last week, and somebody came out with this strident statement about, oh, it's going to hit you this way or that way, and this is my experience. And a number of people chimed in, as did I, and sort of said, it's all anecdotal right now. There's no real data about how these vaccines are impacting people. And Last week, before I heard you all the data that's come out of Whoop, that was exactly right. But now you actually have 51,000 data points to look at how these various vaccines have impacted people, first shot, second shot, or the J&J one shot, and then also older cohorts and younger cohorts. Explain what the data has told you. And just as some background, you know, Whoop as a community and as a company really loves research. It's an audience and a group of employees, myself included, that feel like it's our responsibility to continue doing research and seeing what it learns. Just to go back in time for half a second, you know, January of 2020, we kind of first got cued to the fact that COVID-19 was likely going to be a global pandemic. So we started doing research on COVID-19 in January. And by March, we were the first consumer app to have COVID-19 tracking. And by the end of March of 2020, we had over 2,000 people report having tested positive for COVID-19. So very quickly, we had a large data set. What does COVID-19 data look like on Whoop before, during, and after? We then partnered with various research institutions, and we rapidly worked to analyze the data and see what we found. We did actually find a smoking gun, which was this idea that an elevated respiratory rate could be a predictor of COVID-19. We published that research. It ended up helping lots of different sports organizations, lots of different people. I mean, tens of thousands of people now on WHOOP have reported that WHOOP acted as an early indicator for COVID-19 by viewing this metric uh, respiratory rate. So we're very proud to have played a role in that. And that research is now published in peer-reviewed journal. So anyone can check it out. If you go to whoop.com slash locker, we have a lot of stuff. Uh, posted there, including the research we've done more recently around the COVID-19 vaccines. Before you move on to the vaccine response, will you just tell the anecdote or the story about Nick Watney wearing the whoop strap and, and how that came up as an early indicator on respiratory level? Respiratory rate is a measure of breaths per minute. This is another statistic that whoop measures super accurately. And typically your breaths per minute while you're sleeping are somewhere between 10 and 20 breaths per minute. And what's interesting about this statistic is it's a very boring statistic. It doesn't change at all. So every day you virtually wake up with the same exact respiratory rate. You know, mine's 13 breaths per minute while I'm sleeping. Every day it's 13. Some days 13.1, some days 12.9, but every single day for years. Nick Watney, a professional golfer, he had been on Whoop for uh, 10 months. And so, you know, he had seen some of the research that we had put out by the summer. This would have been June of 2020. Golf was the first sport to come back, PGA Tour. Jay Monahan, the commissioner there, did a great job putting the right infrastructure in place to come back. And they had testing on Tuesday. So Nick Watney tested negative on a Tuesday for COVID-19. Come Thursday, he's playing in the golf tournament. Come Friday, he wakes up and on whoop, he's got a 1% recovery. And he's got a super elevated respiratory rate. So his average was 14. So for 10 months straight, he had a 14. Like every day, it's 14. And then he wakes up this one day and it's an 18. Like it just jumped off the page. And COVID-19 is a lower respiratory tract infection. So it makes all the sense in the world that 
a uh, lower respiratory tract infection affects your breathing that dramatically. He went to the doctors at PGA Tour and said, I need to get tested again for COVID-19. There was a little bit of a back and forth. They said, you're cleared to play. He's like, no, you got to test me. So anyway, they tested him and sure enough, he tested positive. And so he was able to drop out of the tournament and the PGA Tour then learned of this story and they procured over a thousand whoop straps within the next 24 hours for literally every, not just every player, but every caddy, every media member and every staff member because they wanted the whole bubble to be wearing whoop and using respiratory rate. It's been humbling to be able to play a role, but it's also invigorating. Staying on golf for a second, and I'm going completely off of where I wanted to go on this, but since we're talking about golf, what was it like when Matsuhama won the Masters and puts his hands up in the air and there's a whoop strap on his wrist? It's amazing. It never gets old. A lot of our early vision for whoop was that if we built the best technology for understanding your body, the world's best athletes would wear it. And we weren't going to have to pay them to wear it. The technology was going to be so good, they were just going to go out and buy it. And that was one of the strong sort of conviction moments that we talked about earlier that I had. A lot of people were encouraging me to do big equity deals with professional athletes early on in the company's evolution. And I just knew that if we could build the very best technology, these people would wear it. And that's largely what's happened today now, where I'll often discover who's wearing whoop by watching professional sports online or on television. And so Hideki Matsuyama, I had no idea he was wearing whoop. And sure enough, I saw him wearing whoop the week of the Masters. And then on Sunday, he's holding up the trophy with a whoop strap on his wrist. And it does not get old, that's for sure. It's humbling and, and invigorating. Talk about LeBron and Phelps being some of the earliest users of Whoop and seeing LeBron in an ad with a Whoop strap on. It would have been 2014 or 15. We had about 100 people on Whoop, and two of them were LeBron James and Michael Phelps, which was encouraging for a lot of reasons. But a lot of it comes back to this idea that if you can build the best technology, the best people are going to use it. And it also speaks, I think, to both the trainers of Phelps and LeBron. And, and even LeBron and, and Phelps themselves, the fact that they were willing to try new things at a time when they were arguably the two best athletes in the world or close to it. I was at home with my parents watching the NBA playoffs and on the television comes on a Kia commercial with LeBron James. And in the Kia commercial, LeBron is wearing his whoop strap. And I kind of jumped off my couch and I was like, look, mom, look that it's a whoop strap. And, you know, that was kind of at a phase where, you know, you're still trying to really make it as a company and it's, everything feels very fragile. But for that moment, it was pretty cool to see, you know, one of the best athletes in the world so hooked on the product that he wasn't, you know, he didn't take it off even during a commercial for someone else who was paying him. That was humbling. So talking about making commercials, Patrick Mahomes wears a whoop strap and I saw a clip on YouTube of you playing catch with Patrick Mahomes as he was making a commercial. I don't know whether it was for Whoop or some other product, but you got to be the recipient of that spiral coming at you. Talk for a moment about sitting around playing catch with Patrick Mahomes. Yeah, look, I've gotten to meet a lot of the world's best athletes at this stage, and it's really interesting just to listen to them and, and talk to them. In the case of, of Patrick, he came on the Whoop podcast, so we were down there for that. We did a, did a shoot with him. The Whoop podcast has been a good experience, too, because it's been an opportunity for me to really focus on listening. As you know from doing these, you have to pay attention in order to do a good job and to meet the world's best performers, whether they're athletes or executives or doctors or otherwise. And, um, and I think, you know, the more you can soak that in, the more it can rub off on you. So you know, for me, I'm, I'm always excited to meet these high performers and the fact that they wear whoop is, you know, invigorating. So talk about your podcast for a second, because it is really interesting. You've done 121 of them. You were doing your podcast well before the pandemic hit. Your first guest was David Stern, the now late former commissioner of the NBA. You know, that's quite the first guest to have on your podcast. What was it that made you think about launching a podcast and then a tough question, because I've been asked the same way, and it's super difficult. What's been the best podcast you've done? I'm going to get you to, you got to give me one. For whatever reason, there's got to be one in there that said, when you got off, you said, that was amazing. Well, you were a great guest, too. I uh, yeah, thank you. Well, I, I wasn't looking for that, but I greatly appreciated coming on your podcast. It was super fun. 
Yeah, no, it's been, I mean, look, it's been fascinating. I said, let's do 10 of these and see how it goes. And, you know, now we're on 121 and we release one every week. I think it's an opportunity to get to talk to people in a fairly unstructured way about what makes them tick. They're, you know, a lot of what WHOOP stands for is this idea of a performance lifestyle and learning about different people's lifestyles and their mindsets and their habits as it relates to performance. I, I mean, it's been really interesting for me, but I think more importantly, it's been really interesting for the WHOOP community. Whether you're a WHOOP member or not, you know, we've now had the podcast downloaded millions of times. The podcast that, sound, that stands out recently was with Alex Honnold, who people may recognize from the movie Free Solo. He climbed El Capitan, which is a 3,000-foot rock climbing uh, slab with no rope. And it had never been done before. It still hasn't been done again. And so a lot of what we explored was this idea of fear and how he thinks about fear. And the big takeaway I had from it was most people look at Alex Honnold and and sort of the narrative that's written about him is here's a guy that doesn't feel fear. He's got like an amygdala that's just less stimulated genetically. What I realized in talking to him was that's completely the wrong narrative. In fact, he's not a fear seeker at all. He admitted that he was so nervous during a TED talk talking about having climbed this thing with no rope. He was so nervous during the TED talk that he forgot his lines. So this is a guy who's more nervous doing the public speaking than actually the, the rock climbing. And even though the rock climbing can kill him. And the rock climbing, what I realized is he had just worked at something for hours and hours and hours every single day of you know, his adult life to pursue what he considers mastery. And that's how he was able to overcome that specific thing. But it did not mean that he was fearless in all these other contexts of his life. And I think there's some interesting learnings in that. One, it's how amazing the human mind and body is. The fact that you can actually can, you know, take something like that on if you dedicated every waking minute to thinking about it. Or maybe you can, but the fact that humans can is amazing. And two, that there's a different fear structure in all these different walks of life that you are experiencing. Some areas are going to be comfortable. Some areas are going to be very uncomfortable. And just how do you think about that? Or how do I think about that? So I enjoyed Alex a lot. He was also on Loop, which was cool for me to talk to him about. I've been smiling since you started telling that story only because I was on a call yesterday afternoon with two people from the Milken Institute. And we were talking about a lot of different things. And I said almost verbatim what you just said. I said, Alex Honnold, and I went through exactly what you're talking about as it relates to someone who people perceive as being someone who is a fear a risk taker. And in listening to you talk to him, it was very evident that he is not a risk taker and he's actually quite averse to risk. And it was just a phenomenal podcast. So that's, I love hearing you talk about that. You mentioned on a podcast that you did a little while ago that the competitive landscape today of wearables actually has fewer competitors than it did. And you use the day 2015. So I went back and I said, I wonder when the Apple Watch was launched. And sure enough, the Apple Watch was launched in 2015. And then I thought, well, what happened to Fitbit? And I'd forgotten that Fitbit had been acquired by Google. And so I quickly realized that your competitive landscape, your two biggest competitors are Apple and Google. Talk for a moment about being an incredibly successful startup company, but going up against the world's two largest technology behemoths. I'd add Amazon to that list too. And Amazon probably copied us the most closely of any technology company in our history. I was uh, waiting for Amazon to come acquire you. So I, that, that was where my mind went to. So anyway. Well, we're not currently for sale, but I would say this. I think there's an advantage to being in a space for a while, right? We've been in this space now for, for nine years. And when we first entered the space, there were a lot of big sports apparel brands playing in it. And in a lot of ways, I wanted Whoop to grow up to look more like Nike than IBM. So I was actually most afraid of that phase. The Nike fuel band, the Adidas sneak coach, Under Armour spent a billion dollars acquiring technology companies. I was nervous about what those brands could do in terms of creating a positioning around aspirational performance with a mass market consumer product. And again, because a lot of the vision for Whoop was this idea that you can ground health monitoring in sports and make it aspirational and make it cool. And that in turn will help the product become much more mass market 
And so it doesn't feel like you're wearing a medical device in sort of a negative sense. It feels like you're wearing a cool piece of technology that says something about who you are. So I was most afraid of, of these big sports apparel brands. And, you know, for one reason or another, they all exited the space and have said on record that they're probably not going to reenter it. There's been a lot of technology companies that have come and gone. I mean, Google had a smartwatch at one point, Microsoft, Intel. There's been some really well-funded, good-run startups. Jawbone, I think, raised close to a billion dollars. Misfit Wearables, Qantas. You know, if I thought hard enough, I could probably name 20 startups that at various stages were better funded than Whoop and and, uh, were destined to kill us. I think a lot of it has been staying true to our vision and, and continuing to build. And for what it's worth, I think more big technology companies will enter the space. I think the market for health monitoring is literally every human in the world. I believe that in our lifetime, every human will be wearing a health monitor continuously, and it will revolutionize the healthcare industry. I think that's inevitable. You know, if you're a big tech company and you're looking for large markets, that's a pretty good one to go after. One of the things that I found interesting, you talked about the prototypes and how big the prototypes were. And I actually, I forgot to bring in an old Garmin training watch I had, but it's about the size of a brick that I used to wear on my arm. And I was going to hold it up and ask you whether at one point the whoop strap looked like that. And I'm assuming the first prototypes were pretty big and pretty clumsy and you've gotten them smaller and smaller because there's so much brand identity to the whoop will. My thought was at some point, does the whoop strap get embedded into our bodies And at the same time, if it's become such a noteworthy thing to wear and people recognize it, there's also a lot of branding by having it be so prominent. Where are you right now as it relates to getting it smaller and smaller so it is not as seen as it is today? And at the flip side to all that stuff, you get incredible branding because millions of people wear these things around and everyone sees them. Yeah, I've long said that I think wearable technology should be cool or invisible. And Cool is being able to make it an aesthetic that fits your life or, you know, your outfit today. And invisible is it disappears throughout your body. I think a lot of wearable technology is stuck in no man's land somewhere in the middle. It's not particularly good looking and it's not invisible. So we try to play hard left, hard right, cool, invisible. And yes, I mean, admittedly, having people wear it on their wrist is more recognizable than having them wear it in their sock or in a bra. But I think that you ultimately want to empower the consumer to make that decision. And the more seamless and ubiquitous I think the technology can be from a sensing standpoint, the easiest it can be for you to get that data however you want it, I think the better for Whoop and the better for the consumer. I know I can wear my Whoop on my wrist or on my bicep, given the technology and the advances you've made. I mean, we've talked about the fact that you basically took an EKG and put it on your wrist. Does the technology allow you to almost put the whoop strap anywhere, or does it need to be on a part of your body that's an extremity to be able to pick up the blood circulation and have the monitor go down and pick up your vitals? The short answer is yes. Okay. That's great. So if we think about whoop success to date, you're clearly, you're a unicorn. You've got a valuation of over a billion dollars. And we started this talking about your own personal journey of tremendous success throughout your life and staying humble and learning from other people. But for all practical purposes, Whoop has only gone up. And you and I have spoken about the fact that at some point you'd love to take Whoop public and have an IPO of Whoop and uh, continue to run the company. And as you and I both know in the public markets, for better or for worse, stock prices go up and down. How's Will going to deal with a moment in Whoop's history where for all of the great work you're doing, there's a stock price out there that's saying it's not going as good as investors think it should be going? Well, look, I think that comes with the stage and the territory. I've tried to frame most challenges as opportunities. And, you know, that strikes me as an opportunity to, you know, rewire how I think about the company's valuation and how I think about value in general. So every time you've raised capital, you take your team to Mother Anna's in the north end of Boston and celebrate various rounds of financing. First thing is, I want to be invited to the Mother Anna's dinner when you go public and go to the New York Stock Exchange and come back to Boston for that dinner. But in Mother Anna's, on their website, 
they have up there. It says, over the last 85 years, many of these establishments have come and gone. None have stood the test of time quite like Mother Anna's. When you decided to go to Mother Anna's for that first dinner, did you uh, know that their credo, if you will, was that withstood the test of time? Because as we just talked about the competitive landscape, it's pretty neat how Whoop has been able to stand the test of time with lots of competitors trying to come in and take you down. Well, you've done phenomenal research for this interview. I got to give you that. I'm not sure where you pulled that, but that's an amazing data point. So the backstory on Mother Anna's is that when we were three of us, we raised our first 300K, so let's go out for dinner. And it was a fairly haphazard Google search for a restaurant, an Italian restaurant. John, being Italian, loves Italian food. And I had driven him crazy for the last six months by trying out the paleo diet. And we were living together at the time. So we decided to go to Mother Anna's. And then the next time we raised capital, which was, you know, maybe 12 months later, we raised $3 million. We're like, oh, we should do a celebratory dinner. And we said, well, where should we go? And we said, well, the last time we went to Mother Anna's. And so we're like, okay, we'll take, um, you know, the eight people on the team or six people on the team, however many it was out to Mother Anna's. And it's now been a funny, it's been kind of a funny check-in point at every stage. We weren't able to go last time uh, when we raised the $100 million round because of COVID-19. And that was like around October of last year. So that wasn't a good time to go to restaurants. But the round before that and all prior, we've always done this dinner at Mother Anna's. And so the, I think the last dinner we had there probably had 100, 120 people you know, we were kind of busting at the scenes. It wasn't, and a lot of people were like, why are we even at this restaurant? Because it certainly didn't seem like a restaurant optimized for a technology uh, dinner. But, but I think it's fun to, to create these, you know, authentic traditions to your company. One other one that I've gotten a lot of people pinging me about is when we were about four or five people, I said, let's give people a jersey with their number on the back for their employment. So whenever someone starts, they'll get a jersey. And also on the day that person starts, we'll all wear our jerseys. And this had this sort of interesting dual benefit of, one, it creates team camaraderie and this sort of tie between sports and, and, you know, executive roles. But two, when someone starts, they actually can see everyone else's names. And so it makes, you know, kind of identifying what's going on a little less intimidating. And it's cool that the company's kind of celebrating your first day. And so, you know, now when sending out jerseys, I think we're on jersey number 540 or something. And it's sort of been a fun tradition that's lived on. It's fantastic. I was just going to say, uh, given your growth rate, you're going to be able to buy in a lot of jerseys. I'll be very interested when you're up to four digits, how you're going to fit all the numbers on the back of the jersey. It's a real pleasure. I loved diving in and doing research on you, your track record, your history, everything you've done is just super exciting. And the data that you're generating is not only helping individuals, but it's helping society. And it's helping society react everything from a pandemic to vaccines, to making our military more prepared. And that's really, really exciting. That's where the breadth of Whoop is just, for me as an investor in your company, it's just as exciting as anything I can imagine. And so I'm greatly appreciative you taking the time. Congrats on all of your success. And uh, I hope the two of us can go to Mother Anna's sometime soon and have a glass of wine and have a good Italian dinner. No, I'd love that, Willie. This has been a real pleasure. And uh, thank you for having me. Great. I have Deb Cafaro from Ventus, one of the most successful CEOs in America building Ventus from a couple hundred million dollars of market cap to well over $20 billion of market cap, one of the most successful REITs in the United States over the past two decades coming on next week to talk about how she has grown Ventus into the behemoth and incredibly successful publicly traded company that Deb has done. Hope everyone has a great week and uh, thanks again to Will and uh, have a great Wednesday. 